He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord's guidance upon our study. Our Father, we're so thankful we can come together and teach your word, learn your word, reflect upon your word, that we may be reminded that you have a tremendous plan for our lives, a plan that does not simply focus upon our redemption, our salvation, determining that we may go to heaven at the time of physical death, but a plan that Uh, includes every aspect of our life here on earth today, a transformation of of our souls according to your word, that we exchange the truth of Scripture for the fantasies and the myths and the misunderstandings and lies that dominate our souls from our sin nature. Father, we're thankful that we have your word that teaches us the truth. It is the light that shines in our souls, that illuminates our lives so that we can learn to live on the basis of the reality that you created and that you rule over. And Father, we pray that we might learn to live today not in light of our passions, our emotions, not in light of uh, just what is good for today or for tomorrow, but that we might learn to live in light of your eternal plan, a plan that starts with our salvation, our trust in Christ, and continues through our spiritual growth, focusing on our preparation for not just life of service in this life, but serving you in the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and then on into eternity. And, Father, we pray that as we study in relation to our inheritance and that which pertains to our future destiny, that we might be challenged and motivated to live more consistently for you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We find ourselves again in Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 14. We are continuing a study that I began three or four lessons back, focusing on the understanding of the concept of inheritance from verse 14. Who the Holy Spirit is the guarantee, who, that is the Holy Spirit, is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Uh, 
this idea of our inheritance is a doctrine, a teaching of Scripture that we find running throughout the Scripture. It starts, as we will see in part of our study this morning, it started back in the first book of the Old Testament in Genesis. It continued through most of the Old Testament books and is a vital part of the teaching of the New Testament. Since the New Testament was written on the foundation of the Old Testament, it is important to understand what was understood about this whole concept of inheritance and heirship from an Old Testament perspective because when the writers of Scripture come along and they begin to apply this, teach this in relation to who we are in Christ, our inheritance in Christ, our heirship in Christ, that that is built on that, on the presupposition that we understand what has been taught and revealed in the Old Testament, that the Old Testament is the foundation for understanding everything in the New Testament. So what we have seen is that in these passages in the New Testament that teach about inheritance, that there's one aspect that focuses on God's work in providing us with an inheritance. Ephesians 1.14, our passage is one of those critical passages that the Holy Spirit is given to us at the instant of salvation. He indwells us. He has sealed us, that is, he has sort of branded us with the ownership of God, and that as part of that, he is our guarantee of a future inheritance that will be realized at the judgment seat of Christ for believers, according to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verses 12 and following. In 1 Peter 1, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. See, we are uh, born again to an inheritance that is a future goal. And again, this focuses on that work which God did in providing that inheritance. That is one side of this important doctrine, that it has been given to us and that, as 1 Peter 1.4 says, it is an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away and is reserved in heaven for us. That is our future possession that is not dependent on who we are or what we do. It is totally dependent on what we have in Christ. But on the other hand, there are passages that talk about the fact that we are to work for inheritance. We are to serve for inheritance. There is a reward that is in addition to that basic inheritance package, Colossians 3, 4. I've retranslated this because you know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Now, salvation is a free gift, according to Ephesians 2, 8 and, 8 and 9. It is not something that is worked for or earned, but a reward is earned. We will receive the reward of the inheritance. And what's the conclusion? The command, you all, or y'all, as we say in the South, y'all serve the Lord. That's the command. Serving the Lord in this life is the key 
to this reward of the inheritance. Salvation is a free gift, but a reward is earned. So this is important for understanding so many of these passages. And I bring our attention each time I've done this to three passages that seem to be a problem and seem to be poorly uh, understood by many people today. The first is 1 Corinthians 6, 9, which says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And to give you the preview of what we will see when we get there, inherit the kingdom is the problem for interpretation. If inherit the kingdom means to enter into heaven and to have eternal life, then what is being said here seems contradictory to other passages which say that salvation is a free gift and it is not related to any sins or failures on our life because sin was all paid for at the cross. And we will see, and that's why I'm spending so much time talking about inheritance ahead of time, is this concept of inheritance is critical for interpreting the phrase inherit the kingdom. It is not inheriting salvation or possessing eternal life. It is inheriting the kingdom. The kingdom in the New Testament is always based on the Old Testament uh, prophecy that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would come to the earth and establish a kingdom on this earth where he would rule and reign from Jerusalem, from the throne of David. And that is the kingdom. And when that kingdom is established, we as church-age believers will return with the Lord Jesus Christ to the, to the earth and rule and reign with him. Inheriting the kingdom has to do with those ruling and reigning responsibilities not being in, in the kingdom. So when you have these ten sins that are listed here, there are those who do not understand God's grace, do not truly understand salvation, and they seek to make these contingent for salvation. This does not have anything to do with eternal life. That is by faith alone in Christ alone. Ephesians 5.5 5 sort of summarizes those ten sins by saying, This you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Ephesians 5.5 5 is located in the second half of this book that we're studying, and understanding that is based upon first understanding what is said here in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 14. Again, there's a condition placed upon, by a condition of human behavior based upon realizing this inheritance of the kingdom. Galatians 5, 19 and 20 lists again about 17 sins and concludes by saying that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so, again, this is one of those passages taken to strike fear into the hearts of believers that if you sin, then you will not see eternal life. There's a threat of either a loss of salvation or that you were never truly saved if you continue 
uh, a lifestyle pattern of these particular sins. And the reality is this is a misunderstanding of both salvation, that Christ paid for all sins, which means that sin is not the issue for eternal life, and a misunderstanding of the kingdom and what is involved there. So in the past several weeks, we have looked at different aspects of inheritance. Last week, we looked at the uh, passages, various passages in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, where Jesus is talking directly to believers. He's not talking to unbelievers. Specifically states at the beginning of Matthew 5, 1, Jesus took his disciples apart and he began to teach them. What he is teaching them in the Sermon on the Mount, as we studied when we went through Matthew, is how the repentant believer will live. By repentant believer, I mean, I am referencing what John the Baptist said when he came. He said, repent. He's addressing Israel, the nation of Israel. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven, as we saw, is that messianic kingdom that was promised and prophesied in the Old Testament. John is the forerunner of Jesus. He is announcing that the king is at hand and the kingdom will be, is being offered on the, on the basis of repentance. That is changing your mind, returning to obedience to the law and accepting Jesus as the, as the Messiah. Those who would respond to that message were those who were now given instructions by Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7 as to how that repentant believer, the person who had uh, responded positively to John the Baptist's message, should live. Now, embedded within John, uh, Matthew 5 through 7 are a number of different contrasts between the superficial righteousness of the Pharisees and that which the uh, believer in Jesus uh, would experience, and the superficiality and the public demonstrations of religious behavior by the Pharisees was said to be to bring them their own reward. They're going to be viewed, and they're going to be talked about by people. That's their reward, but that's all they get. But you... You will pray in secret, you'll give in secret, you'll live your spiritual life before the Lord, and he's the one who will reward you. You may be persecuted, you may be reviled and ridiculed, you may even give your life, but it is the Father who gives the reward, and so trust in him. That's the background. Again, we see that there was a difference between the gift of salvation, the free gift of salvation, and that these rewards were based upon behavior. So the big takeaway from all of this is that when inheritance is the focus, there are two aspects. One is what God provides for every believer that is not ever uh, threatened or at issue or uh, anything like that. It is our secure inheritance. On the other hand, there is a second category of inheritance that is in addition to that that is called, referred to by the term rewards that is based upon our behavior, our pursuit of spiritual maturity, our service to the Lord, and our preparation for that future role to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to go and continue our study about what the Bible teaches about inheritance 
as possession. Background on this, which we've already studied, is in our culture we think of inheritance as something we get as a result of a will and somebody dies, and as a result of that there's a property exchange. But the concept of inheritance in the uh, ancient Near East was quite different. It had, that may be part of it, but it would primarily focus upon simply ownership or possession of property. And what I'm establishing here this morning is that this idea of two aspects of inheritance is not something new to the New Testament, but it was part of the understanding of inheritance going all the way back to the Old Testament, that the Old Testament teaches these two aspects of inheritance. There is an inheritance that goes to all, uh, which is not lost. I'm not talking about all believers because part of what we will see here is that within the structure of the Abrahamic covenant, there is the promise of the land uh, to Israel, the promise of many other things to Israel as a corporate entity. Uh, there are believers and unbelievers in Israel, so the analogy is not uh, is, is going to be directed towards the church. It is not talking about uh, inheritance in relation to salvation or or faith. It is talking about inheritance in relation to that that covenant. So all Israel were part are, are recipients of the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. And so there is an inheritance for all. But there's a realization of uh, uh, an, an aspect of that inheritance, that possession, that is based upon their obedience. That's what I'm developing this morning. So the Old Testament teaches that there is this inheritance to all which is not lost. That is analogous to the inheritance that all believers have in Christ, the passage we're looking at in Ephesians 1.14, it will be referred to again in Ephesians 1.18, and in the passage we also read this morning, 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4. But there is a second category of inheritance that is based on obedience. For example, all of the land was given to Israel positionally according to the Abrahamic covenant and God's promise in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, but the realization, the possession, the enjoyment, the reception of blessing from that land was predicated on obedience. So at the end of the Mosaic Law in Leviticus 26, there's the warning that if you disobey God, God will bring different, uh, different levels of judgment or discipline against the nation. And if you continue in disobedience, he will remove you from the land. Israel still had ownership rights to the land as they do today, but because of disobedience to God, they would not realize the blessings of that ownership. They would be removed from, from the land. Now, this is built on a principle that we can trace through the patriarchs that shows that there is this, this possession is part of inheritance, there's a principle that underlies this. I remember almost to the, not to the, to the day, but to the year, in the time of the year when I first heard this taught and was fascinated by it. And it's built on this understanding that God used a, his own standard rather than the normal human standard uh, in terms of this inheritance. And the principle is that the elder will serve the younger. 
in ancient in the ancient world, a principle that dominated throughout most cultures and empires was that the firstborn, the elder, would be the one who would receive the double blessing of the inheritance. And the other sons would receive other aspects of inheritance, but there's the double blessing that would go to the elder. But rather than basing God's blessing on the human cultural standard, he changes that so that it is the elder that serves the younger, not the younger that serves the elder son. I want to give you some examples of this because this is often not clearly understood. So the normally normal situation, the firstborn would receive the double portion. In the case of Abraham, remember Abraham is called by God out of Ur of the Chaldees. He eventually followed God's command and he ends up in the land God promised him And God has promised that he will give him this land and that he will multiply his descendants and his descendants would be a blessing to all the world. And yet Abraham is old. He is past the years of childbearing. His wife is past the years of childbearing. And so uh, he's trying to figure out other ways to make this work for God. He's trying to help God. Often we try to help God in blessing us and we just muck things up just as Abraham did. And one way he attempted to do it at the beginning of Genesis 15 was saying, Lord, I don't have any children. How in the world are you going to fulfill this promise? Why don't we take a simple route here? I have a servant who is faithful. I'll just adopt him and make him my son, and we'll, we'll make Eliezer the promised son. And God said, no, not, no, it's going to be a son of you and Sarah. And so after a while, a few years goes by, there's no son. Sarah is now way past the years of childbearing, and so she says, I've got an idea, let's help God. And I have a servant woman here, Hagar, who is Egyptian. Why don't we make her a concubine and you have relations with her and her son will be the firstborn? And so Abraham listened to Sarah and said, well, that's a good idea. Let's try that out. And so she gave birth to a son named Ishmael. And so Ishmael became the firstborn. But Ishmael was not the promised seed. God corrected him and said, no, once again, it's the, the, you will have a son. You and Sarah will have a son. And that led to the birth of Isaac. And God created a miracle for uh, Sarah to be able to get pregnant. All the things involved just physically for a woman so far past menopause and past childbearing years to be, have her whole womb and um, reproductive organs regenerated was just, I've heard medical doctors talk about this at length. It's just unbelievable. And yet God did that and he and and Sarah gave birth to a son named Isaac. So Isaac is the younger, Ishmael is the older, but Ishmael is not given the birthright, but he is still given a special blessing from God. So often Ishmael sort of gets a bad rap because uh, later we're told that Ishmael is a wild ass of a man and that the descendants of Ishmael will be antagonistic to the descendants of, of uh, Isaac. 
And so there are so many who read the text superficially and think, well, that means Ishmael wasn't a believer. But if you read carefully the scripture, God blessed Ishmael. He just didn't get the blessing of the firstborn. In fact, in Genesis uh, 21.12, God instructs Abraham and says, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of the bondwoman. He's talking about Ishmael. And at this point, God is going to direct him to send Hagar and Ishmael away. And that has been Sarah's recommendation as well. So God says, listen to her voice because in Isaac, your seed, your descendants will be called. You're not Jewish because you're a descendant of Abraham. You're not Jewish because you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, uh, alone. But you're Jewish if you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the seed line goes through Isaac. And then uh, God said in verse 13, Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. See, Ishmael was richly blessed by God but he isn't getting the blessing of the firstborn. Uh, Then uh, we look ahead and we see in terms of Esau, same kind of situation. This is Isaac's son. Isaac marries Rebekah. Rebekah gets pregnant. She's pregnant with twins. Esau is the firstborn. He He comes out just ahead of Isaac. Isaac is uh, referred to as the heel grabber. because It's like he's grabbing. He he wants to supplant Esau, which seems to be a trend of his sin nature. He's going to get that birthright by hook or by crook, whether uh, uh, he's not going to wait for God. That was Isaac's problem. Esau lost the birthright. We all should be familiar with that story where uh, Isaac sends Esau on a mission. Esau's a hunter. He's hairy. He's he's a man's man. He goes out, and he's going to uh, hunt wild game and come back and prepare a meal for Abraham. So Rebecca gets the idea that we're going to, we're going to help God out here. So Esau doesn't get the blessing. She's going to disguise uh, Isaac and she's, I mean, disguise uh, uh, Jacob and she's going to send Jacob out uh, to secure game and she's going to cook it just like, uh, 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 Isaac would like it or whether she's going to take, take an animal and make it, make it good so that Isaac would be fooled and he brings it to Isaac, and Isaac accepts it. He's a little dubious. He's blind by this time, doesn't really, can't really discern whether it's Esau. He's a little suspicious. He says, wait a minute, you're not really acting like Esau. And uh, uh, Jacob had put fur over his arms so that he would, could say to his father, see, feel my arms and feel how hairy I am. I'm Esau. And so he deceived his father Isaac. But see, God had already announced before their birth that Isaac would be the seed, I mean that Jacob would be the seed, that the blessing would go through the younger and not through the older. Jacob is just trying to manipulate the situation now. So Esau then sells his birthright. He comes back also from hunting. He's tired. He's hungry. Uh, Isaac's got a pot of lentil soup. And and Esau says, oh, that smells good. I want that that soup. I'm I'm famished." And and Isaac still manipulating to. I mean, excuse me. I keep saying Isaac instead of Jacob. Jacob is is um, 
uh, still manipulating the situation. He says, I'll make you a deal. I'll give you the, the lentil soup if you sell me your inheritance rights. And Esau says, well, that sounds good to me. I'll make a trade. And so he treats his inheritance rights very casually and with disrespect. This is background for understanding passage we'll go to in Hebrews later on. So he sells his inheritance right to to Jacob. So Jacob gets the double blessing of his father through chicanery. He manipulates the situation with with his brother Esau and tricks him into selling his birthright. Uh, so both of them, according to the customs and the the uh, laws of that time, they give up. He gives Esau gives up his birthright, and it goes to Isaac. But God is going to bless Esau richly. When Isaac, who had to leave for a while, went up north into uh, Syria, and which is where he married his two wives, Leah and Rachel, when he came back down, because Esau had been threatening to kill him because of these previous deceptions, uh, Jacob is is worried that Esau is going to still be still hate him. And so when he came back, he's sending flocks and herds ahead of them, all these gifts to Esau. And when Esau came and finally met him, he said, I don't need all of this. God's richly blessed me. I have so many possessions. I don't know what to do with them. God has taken care of me. So this is Esau later in life. God blessed him, but he doesn't have the blessing of the double portion. He doesn't have the inheritance rights. The same thing happens with Reuben, Jacob has 12 sons. The firstborn is Reuben. Reuben, uh, according to the law of primogenitor, would get the double portion, but he loses the birthright. In First Chronicles 5.1, we're told that he, though he was the firstborn, he defiled his father's bed, and his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph. That would be Ephraim and Manasseh. So, Reuben lost the birthright. He still gets a, an inheritance, but he doesn't get the inheritance of the firstborn. It went to Joseph and Joseph's two sons. Manasseh, of the two sons of Joseph, you have Manasseh and Ephraim. Uh, Manasseh is the older, Ephraim is second. And in a very interesting scenario, uh, Jacob has now come from the land. We all know the story of Joseph in the coat of many colors and how he was sold into slavery and goes to Egypt and then through various uh, things that happen. He's thrown in prison. He's brought out of prison by God and is elevated by the Pharaoh to the second highest position in the land because God is going to use Joseph to protect his family and protect his brothers. During a famine, they come down to Egypt and so when his father comes, who for all this time thought that Joseph was dead, Jacob is introduced to his grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he is going to bless them. And as he reaches out to bless them, Joseph has made it clear that, that Manasseh would be on, uh, on the right side of Jacob and Ephraim on the other side, but when, when Jacob is going to bless them, he crosses his hands so that his right hand is going to go to the younger, his left hand is going to go to the elder. And this is what we read in Genesis 48, 17 to 19. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. 
So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is firstborn. In other words, he's going to interfere in the process, forgetting the principle of the elder is now going to serve the younger. But his father says to him, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a great people. See, there's blessing to the still to the firstborn. It's not the primary blessing. The firstborn blessing went to the younger. It went to Ephraim. But there's still a blessing. There's still an inheritance to the other. My point in going through this is that we have to understand that there's this one blessing that is the full blessing that the one who doesn't get that is not disinherited. He doesn't lose everything. He just doesn't get that blessing of the firstborn. So there's two categories of blessing that we see. We see it illustrated again in the history of, of Israel. In the Exodus generation, the whole nation is identified as God's firstborn in Exodus 4.2. Where, God, where Moses announced to the Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So they are the firstborn. They have the inheritance rights, but that generation, that Exodus generation, failed to trust God at Mount Sinai while Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights receiving the law. What happens down below? The people get restless. The people are bored. The people say, well, we want to have a little excitement. Uh, and so they then shift away from trusting God, even after all the miraculous things God has done for them. And they convince and intimidate Aaron into making a golden calf so that they could worship him in the style of the pagans, and they have a big orgy. And so as a result of that, God is going to bring discipline upon the nation that generation is not going to realize the possession of the inheritance in the land. They're going to all, with the exception of two, Caleb and Joshua, they're all going to die in the wilderness. And it is going to only be the next generation that trusts God, that obeys God, that realizes the actual possession and ownership of the land. So what we see in all of this is that though not all have an inheritance in the land, all of Israel had God as their inheritance and possession. Passages such as Psalm 73:26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion. That word helic in the Hebrew indicating the portion of an inheritance. Psalm 119:57, the Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep thy words. In Psalm 142, 5, I cried out to, to thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. So there is an inheritance here that is God, the possession of God, and there is a secondary inheritance that has to do with blessing for obedience. And so in our conclusion, though not all have an inheritance in the land, all had God as their inheritance and their possession. Thus, we see that the Old Testament teaches two categories of inheritance, inheritance of God for all believers and an inheritance that is not for all believers, that is restricted to those who are obedient. 
So that takes us to the next step in understanding uh, inheritance, and that is what the Bible teaches about heirship, especially as it's going to relate to us as church-age believers. So there's three questions that come to mind as we address this whole topic. The first is, is inheritance a synonym for receiving eternal life? When we get into those three passages I talked about in 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 5 and Galatians 5, those who commit all these sins will not inherit the kingdom. So is that phrase inheriting inheritance or inheriting the kingdom a synonym for salvation, for receiving eternal life, for going to heaven when we die? Uh, second, we need to ask this question, is an inheritance earned? Is it given freely or is it both? That's what the text seems to indicate, that it is both, that there is an inheritance that is freely given. There is another inheritance that is on the basis of our actions or our behavior. And then third, what exactly is the meaning of inheritance when it's used in the phrase, inherit the kingdom of God? Those are the key questions, because this is this is so crucial when we read passages in Scripture. We live in this little bubble where we're concerned about today and tomorrow and maybe next week. But what the Scriptures are doing is teaching us that it's a long game. We need to live in light of that long game and that this is just a, a, a dust particle in, in, in the whole timeline of eternity. And that although we think everything is focused upon today, it isn't. It is to focus on eternity. It's not just that we will spend eternity in heaven, but that there's going to be distinctions. There are going to be rewards and privileges and responsibilities that are based on what happens in this life. So first of all, what we see in the New Testament is that Christ is designated as the heir of all things. Christ is designated as the heir of all things. In Hebrews 1-2, we read, In these last days, God, that's the subject of the first verse, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So Christ is appointed as the heir of all things. Our heirship, then, is going to be based on various doctrines in Scripture, such as the teaching of adoption, that we are adopted into the family of God. We become sons of God uh, at the instant of faith in Christ. For as many as received him, John writes in John 1.12, as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. And so the question is, are we a child of God? Not everyone is a child of God, for as Jesus confronted the Pharisees, he said, you are of your father the devil. So there are those who are unbelievers, as we all were at one time, and we are under the uh, control and authority of Satan. But when we trust in Christ, we're transferred into the family of God. We are adopted into his family and we become heirs according to the promise. That's Galatians 3.29. If we are Christ's, 
then you are Abraham's seed. That is, we are spiritual descendants, for we follow Abraham in his faith. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham trusted God, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. When we trust in God, uh, the promise of salvation, then instantly we are given the righteousness of Christ. So we are also placed in Christ. As a result of being in Christ, we share that heirship from God. This leads to uh, the next statement. Heirship is based on the grace promises of the Abrahamic covenant, ultimately. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That promise is what Abraham believed, um, that he was all, all, when he was saved, he believed God's promise of eternal salvation, and that is why he was, was given righteousness. Fourth point is heirship demands eternal life because the son must have the same life as the father. If we are inheritors of, the, of God, then we must share his life, and so we are given his life through regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, Titus 3.5, and it's not on the basis of the works of righteousness which we have done. So we're just building a, a case, case by case, as we move through this, that we are to understand what God has provided for us. So he saves us not on the basis of works, but on the basis of regeneration given new life, eternal life in him. And then if you continue in that passage in Titus 3.5, going down to Titus 3.7, we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So that is our possession, part of our being heirs of God. We have eternal, eternal life. And that means, under the fifth point, that heirship means that we share the destiny of Christ. We share his destiny. We are in him in the church age. If you remember, as we read through Ephesians chapter 1 again and again, Paul is saying, in Christ, in him, in Christ, again and again, the blessings that we have, because as church age believers, we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, which means we are baptized, are immersed, identified with Christ, and so we are now new creatures in him. We have a new life, and part of that is we share in the uh, destiny of Christ. That's our context in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse verse 14. That should not be 111. This, uh, this is an old slide, so that has a wrong verse, Ephesians 1, uh, 14. Sixth, inheritance is both a present reality and a future possession. That's what we see in the other verse we looked at, Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. It is our present possession, but it's focusing on a future reality, which leads to the basic point that we live today in light of the fact that we are heirs of God, looking forward to a participation in a joint heirship with Christ. We'll get to that in a few verses. Also in, that's also not only 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, but Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, which is the text that we're studying. Another aspect of this inheritance in the seventh point is that it means that we are eternally secure. 
We cannot lose our salvation. It's based upon God the Holy Spirit being given to us. Never before in human history was God the Holy Spirit given to a believer. In the Old Testament, they are not indwelt by the Spirit. In the Old Testament, they are not sealed by the Spirit. In the Old Testament, they have a different kind of relationship with the old, with the Holy Spirit. But in the New Testament, every single believer at the instant of salvation is given by the Holy Spirit who indwells them. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 3.16. He makes us a temple to God. The Holy Spirit dwells, uh, dwells within us and seals us, giving us that mark or that brand of ownership that we are not our own, but we are God's. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of that inheritance. That means when you buy a car and you put your down payment down, you know that eventually that car is fully yours. It is the beginning of the process. God the Holy Spirit is a down payment on what we will eventually realize, which is uh, that redemption of God's own possession there at the end of verse Verse 14, he's given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to redemption of God's own possession. It's the starting point of a process that will always end in our secure eternal glorification and life eternal. So we come to the conclusion that there's two aspects to this inheritance. Inheriting the kingdom is one, inheriting salvation is another. We all inherit uh, salvation. We see this in Romans 8.17, passage I've gone over many times with you, so you're familiar with this. Some of you are not. Romans 8.17, Paul says, if we are children and if we trust in Christ, as I said from John 1.12, we all become children of God. We are called sons of God. If we are children, we are all heirs of God, the passage says, and joint heirs with Christ. Now, I haven't, I removed the punctuation from this verse. In the Greek text, there's no punctuation. Greeks didn't use periods and commas and colons and semicolons and m dashes and all of the other things that we use. It was indicated generally just by syntax and by context. So you have to read with understanding to know where the pauses are, where the sentences break, and those kinds of things. And so we look at this passage, and if we take out the, the, uh, the, the commas, we have to decide whether the term heirs of God and the phrase joint heirs with Christ are synonyms or are they two different categories of inheritance. And that is going to depend on where we put the commas. Now, here we have a st- statement that doesn't have any commas. Woman without her man is nothing. I've got to come up with another statement. Y'all are getting too used to this. I had one one time and forgot to write it down and lost it. Some of you are new, so you need to learn this. There's a couple of different ways you can punctuate this. You can punctuate it by putting a comma after woman and a comma after her. That would make without her uh, secondary, and so the main phrase would be uh, uh, man is nothing. So the woman without her, man is nothing. So you're basically saying that without the woman, 
man's lost, he's nothing, he just isn't going to get anywhere. Now, see, the women like that. Okay, now, if you punctuate it a different way, and you say, woman without her man is nothing, now you're saying woman is nothing. So you're either saying man is nothing or you're saying woman is nothing. It all depends on where you put the commas. So commas are important. Now, there's no comma in Romans 8.17 in the original, so you have to decide. If you put a comma the way it's normally translated, where you have a comma after Christ and no comma after God, then you read it as if there's one heirship. You're heir of God and joint heir with Christ. It's all the same. And that is all dependent on this conditional clause, if we suffer with him. Now, wait a minute. That seems to contradict Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and Titus 3, 5. They suggest that we're not saved by works of righteousness. We're not saved by works. Galatians 2, 16, it's not by the works of the law that we are justified, but by faith in Christ. All those passages indicate salvation is just a free gift. It's not dependent on suffering with Jesus. It's not depending on being moral. It's not depending on being sinless. It's just a free gift. So if we say that's a problem translating it that way, let's just take out this second comma and put it over here behind God where I've got it on the slide. Then we have two types of inheritance. We're all heirs of God as believers in Christ. But there's a second category of inheritance that's dependent upon suffering with him. Now, that doesn't mean going out and being a martyr or making sure you're going to be thrown in jail for being a street preacher or something like that. It is that if we are living in this life, in this fallen world with our sin nature, and if we are seeking to trust Christ and live for him, we will encounter adversity, we will encounter opposition, resentment, rejection to one degree or another simply because we are identified with the truth of Scripture. And so this is promising a second category of inheritance for those who grow spiritually. Now, a couple of more points and we're done. Just as Christ inherits the kingdom in Psalm 2, 8 and 9 due to his loyalty to God the Father, uh, so will the joint heirs with Christ. Okay, so this is Hebrews 1, 8 and 9, quoting from uh from Psalm 45, 6, and 7. The point is, is if we are walking with the Lord and growing to maturity in Christ, then we will be rewarded. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 3 at the judgment seat of Christ. Those rewards have to do with our roles and responsibilities as resurrected church-age believers when we're serving with, with the Lord in the millennial kingdom. So there's a difference that we see in another difficult passage in Scripture between living with Christ, living as believers, and reigning with him. Let's just look at this particular passage. Uh, first, 2 Timothy 2.11 says, It's a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. Now, when did we die with Christ? When did you die with Christ? The instant you trusted Christ as Savior, Romans 6, 3 through 6 says we were identified with Christ in his death. Okay, so we died with him the instant we trusted in Christ. So if we died with him, we shall also live with him. That applies to every believer. 
In 2.12, it says, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. Now, that's a condition. If you endure, you will reign. There's a difference between living and reigning. Living with him is having eternal life and being in heaven forever and ever. Reigning with him has to do with those responsibilities and privileges that are given to those who were advancing to spiritual maturity. And then in the second part of verse 12, it says, if we deny him, he also will deny us. See, that isn't talking about losing our salvation. That's talking about being denied rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. We'll come back to that in just a minute. So thus the kingdom has been promised to those who love God, and not all believers love God. Some believers are just glad they're going to go to heaven, and then they become rebellious, and they treat their inheritance lightly, and so they they give up that joint heirship with Christ, but they're still heirs of God. Remember, love for God is expressed, expressed through obedience to God, and we see that in many statements in Scripture, John 14, 21 to 24 being one of them. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's not how to get saved. That has to do with our growth in spiritual maturity. And now back to what we talked about earlier with Esau. Esau is an illustration of the believer who fails to appreciate his inheritance. See, the warning comes in Hebrews that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. Now, this isn't talking about Esau later in life. This is talking about Esau at the time that he's willing to sell his birthright for a bowl of lentil soup. And at that point, he treated his inheritance lightly. He was willing to sell it. Afterwards, he regretted it. He went back to to uh, Isaac to beg for the inheritance to be given the blessing. And Isaac said, it's too late. The deal's done. You've given up that firstborn right. That blessing goes now to Jacob. See, that's the picture of the believer who is at the judgment seat of Christ. He has, he's an heir of God. He has eternal life. But the blessings that he could have had if he had walked with the Lord during his life will be, will be lost. Genesis 27 to 28 reflects that begging of Esau. He, I believe he genuinely regretted what he had done. But there are some decisions we make in life and we reap the consequences for those. So Esau lost his inheritance blessing, but not his position as Isaac's son, and not all blessing from God. See, the same is true for us. That's the warning we have to understand. As we go to these passages, as we talk about our inheritance, as we talk about Ephesians 1.14, we have a secure inheritance in God that is based upon what Christ did on the cross and God giving us the Holy Spirit as the one who is the guarantee of that inheritance. But there's another aspect to that inheritance. And Paul will talk about that second part in Ephesians 5.5 so that we have these, these two aspects to inheritance. One is that we can rest and rely on in confidence that if you've trusted Christ as Savior, you have eternal life. But you were not saved just to have eternal life. You were saved as God's own possession to serve him in this life for an eternal purpose. And part of that has to do with reigning with Christ in the kingdom and on into eternity. 
And those are the important decisions in life. Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? And then the second is, are you willing to follow him day by day as a disciple? And that decision we have to make many, many times, every single day, every week, uh, throughout our lives. Are we going to live to serve the Lord? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to to learn about you today, to learn about your plan of salvation, your plan for our spiritual life, our plan for spiritual growth, to recognize that we've been given great privileges and great, uh, and great teaching in your word, great information, and that it depends upon us. Are we going to live for you or are we going to live for ourselves? And that's a decision we make every day. Are we going to follow the process of, of Romans 12.2? to not be conformed to the world, not do it like everybody else, not follow uh, the trends and the, all of the things that are being done that are popular today, but are, we're just going to live for you, which means we have to come to understand who you are. If we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, then we have to focus upon your word and let your word and God the Holy Spirit transform us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here or anyone listening, uh, to this lesson, that they would be very clear on salvation, that our eternal life is based not on our sin or on cleaning up our lives or being moral or, or ritual or any other human factor. It's just based on what Christ did on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. Paul said, he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. Jesus Christ bore in his own body on the tree our sin so that we do not have to be concerned about sin in terms of our salvation. We simply trust in his death for us, and we are eternally saved. But, Father, that gives us new life, and we must nurture that life, nourish that life, and we must grow. And that's the focus of this message. Are we willing to grow and mature as believers, making your word and our relationship with you our number one priority. Father, we pray that you challenge us with this in Christ's name. Amen.